For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Genesis 1, the book of Genesis. This is a book that was written by Moses around 1440 B.C. to the Israelites after they left Egypt. You may have read or heard the story of Moses. He leads the Israelites out of slavery, and this is when he begins to write down the first five books of our Bible, and also the first five books of the Jewish Bible called the Torah, the Law of Moses, the Books of Moses. And Genesis is everything that took place before the whole stuff in Egypt for the Israelites. And, you know, what he's really trying to explain through this book are big questions that these people might have had. Questions like, who is God? Who am I and where did I come from? Why is this world the way that it is? What is God doing? What does he want me to do? And finally, how do we end up in Egypt? Now, maybe you found yourself wondering some of these questions here, especially the top four. <laughs> Unless you happen to be in Egypt and you're wondering how you got there, but I don't think Genesis is really going to answer that directly for you. But questions like these, these are the big questions we, we wonder about. Who is, is there a God? And if so, who is he or it or who are they, the gods? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why is this world the way that it is? Something seems so right and so wrong at the same time. And then what is God doing? What does he want me to do? Is there a purpose? Is there a meaning for this? These are the questions that maybe keep us up at night. Some of these questions are questions that dominate our science textbooks, that dominate our philosophy textbooks, that dominate popular and modern literature, that dominate the news. And they have a lot of implications for how we live our lives. And they have implications for the afterlife. And so the book of Genesis is, is brilliant because it contains in seed form, or sometimes explicitly, all the major theological themes and questions and problems of Scripture that really are not even wrapped up in their entirety until the final chapters of Scripture. And so it becomes foundational for everything else that follows in God's revelation of himself. And so we're going to study the book of Genesis and we're going to start right here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It begins simply, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture, I don't know. Some people, they start reading and this is, all, this is about as far as they get. <laughs> Something happens on their phone and they're gone, you know. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just a few words, but they really do tell us a lot. In the beginning, God. Think about that. What, what it tells us right, right from the beginning is that there is God. God is there. This is the word Elohim. There's a number of words for God in the Old Testament. This is the most common one. Over 2,700 times this word occurs. We see that God is personal. God is not an it. God is a personal being. You refer to him as you, not it. He, not it. A personal being sort of like us. That would disagree with a number of, of world religions and philosophies. We also see God is separate from nature. That nature is not one with God, 
that God is not nature. Nature is so amazing at times that, that people have been tempted to worship. People have worshipped it throughout history. But no, God is distinct from nature. God is separate from nature. God is not one with the universe. You have God and then you have the universe. He stands over and above the created order. God is eternal. In the beginning, God. When the beginning began, there he was. It wasn't like the beginning began and then God came into existence. No. In the beginning, God. And so there's a being that was there before space or time was there. God says in Isaiah 48, I am he. I'm the first. I'm also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth. Well, if it has a beginning, it also sort of implies that this, this created order God has made has an end. And at the end we don't find out until the end of Scripture. And yet he's, he was there when it started, and he's going to be there when this, this section comes to an end, when this phase comes to an end in what he's doing. Also, God is, is singular. Scripture is very clear on that. God is one. There are not multiple gods. It doesn't say, in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. But at the same time, what's strange is the noun here is plural. Elohim. That's the plural word in Hebrew. But the verb is singular. Plural noun, singular verb. That's like me saying, in the beginning, they is happy. You'd be like, what? <laughs> they are happy or, or he is happy? No, it, it's putting together things that grammatically shouldn't, shouldn't go together, but that's because there's a theological concern that's overriding the grammatical concern. And that's why usually when you see Elohim in Scripture, it's talking about God, the Creator God. There are times where it's talking about all the gods of the pagans or whatever. But when it's Elohim referring to God, it's always singular verbs. And so, this is strange. This is why later in this chapter, for example, God can say, let us make man in our image. There's you know, why is he saying that? Is it some sort of like plural of majesty like the royal we, like we are not amused, the queen might say? It's mysterious. God's there. We don't know where he came from. And um, there's some sort of strange unity. And yet there's, there's hints here. It's some kind of plurality. Hints that really won't be developed until later when we see God the Son come into the world and then it becomes much clearer when he starts saying, I and the Father are one. Or for example, John 17, Jesus is praying on the final night before the cross and he says, now Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Whoa. I'd like to have a little more insight into that prayer right there. Or he prays again, he says, you love me even before the world began. And so we see one God, and yet somehow he's able to exist in love. This is why scripture can say God is love. This is why love, you know, is not something God had to create beings in order to love. Love is inherently part of who he is. He didn't need to create people in order to have someone to love. No, he exists in, in, in a trinity. It's, it's, it's very confusing. 
Well, we can't fully understand it for sure. It's just there. It's taught. And so God apparently made some choice to create the world. He's also all-powerful. You know, this, this term, the heavens and the earth, Hugh Ross points out that's a compound term. Hebrew only had 3,000 words. They had, the words had to do double duty, triple duty. They had to do a lot of duty. And sometimes you'd put two words together, and they would, when they're together, they have, an, they have another meaning. It'd be like, you know, our, we have compound words like, you know, butterfly, right? You got butter and you got fly, and then you put them together. It's butterfly, right? So it's, <laughs> you kind of get a new thing. So heavens and earth, I guess it flies, right? But... <laughs> Uh, it's, there's no relation to butter at all, okay? <laughs> Heavens and earth, Hugh Ross points out, this is the totality of the physical universe. All the matter and energy and whatever else it contains. God just launched it. And it's not like, like sometimes we envision this as like outer space and we're floating through and you, know, you kind of get the, the Milky Way image and stuff. No, this is not like all there was was air. No. There was nothing. There wasn't even air. There wasn't even space. There was no space or time, apparently, at this point. And then God is powerful enough just to be like, boom. And he starts it. It begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This God of the Bible is very different from the kind of gods that humans make up. If you read ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, they're very different. The Babylonian creation story from the second millennium BC. Here's their version of how the world began. It says the gods of battle sharpen their weapons. There's already all these gods. And it says the two greatest, wisest of gods, Tiamat and Marduk, they start going at it. They strove in single combat, locked in battle. Then the Lord spread out his net to enfold to her. Marduk is, kind of throws his net out. The evil wind which followed behind, he let loose in her face. Evil wind from behind to the face. <laughs> Whoa, is that a low blow? I don't know. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove in the evil wind that she closed, not her lips. She's like, ah! Her mouth, her body is inflating, I guess. And as the fierce winds charged her belly, her body was distended, her mouth was wide open, a perfect target, right? He released the arrow. It's like Hunger Games. It tore her belly. It cut through her insides, splitting the heart. He cast down her carcass to stand upon it. The Lord trod on the legs of Tiamat with his unsparing mace. He crushed her skull. He split her like a shellfish in two parts. This is like all the fighting, man. He just rips her open, though. And then half of her, pew, sky. The other half, waters and that's how the earth came to be <laughs> okay you don't see any of that in the biblical account there's no gods there's no battle there's no question here 
The earth is not divine, made out of the carcass of some god. No, God's just like, boom, creates the heavens and the earth. What about this one? The ancient Egyptian pyramid texts. Surely you've all read, read Utterance 547, text 1248. Very different from the biblical creation account. Sexualized, ladies are sexualized, violent. No, none of that in the biblical account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, he created that word created. It's a special word. It's only, it's only, it's a verb only used of God in scriptures. And it says he created the heavens and the earth. That means it answers this pretty important question. Why is there something instead of nothing? Do you ever wonder that? You ever look around and you're like, why is there something here instead of nothing? How did any of this happen? Is this eternal? Is matter eternal? Has it always been here? Well, for a long time, that was, that was the view. But advances in science have basically brought the consensus to the irresistible, unavoidable conclusion that no, things have not gone on forever the way that they were. We, we're not living in a a universe that stretches to the infinite past, but that the universe actually had a beginning point. A feature that's pretty difficult to explain for modern science. I've got a little three-minute video here from William Lane Craig's organization, Reasonable Faith, that explains what's called the cosmological argument, which, which explores this question, why is there something instead of nothing? And what does that lead us to? So... this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. 
Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. Make some good points there. Robert Jastrow, agnostic, NASA scientist, Columbia professor, his book, God and the Astronomers, he, he basically goes through, he documents sci- quote, quote after quote from scientists in the early, early 1900s, including guys like Einstein who were just like, we cannot come to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning. I find this so reprehensible. Um, th- this can't be. It, and, and, it's, and yet he's like, but, but here we are. And he makes this point. This is a famous quote from me. He says, We scientists did not expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning because we've had, until fairly recently, such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. What came before that? What came before that? What came before that? But the scientist who's lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. They're doing the math and they're they're tracing it back and back and then they finally come to, there's a point where you can't go back any further. A point where space and time began. And scripture says, yeah, we call that in the beginning. God created the heavens in the earth. Now he says, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is a strange verse. There's, these are very mysterious verses here. Okay, this is, this is definitely not a science textbook, as you can see. Didn't intend to be one either. It's true, it's history. But, uh, you know, we, we could fill this room with science textbooks describing the origins of the earth. We've got a few short verses in the scriptures. 
One strange thing is there's already some stuff here. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness is over the surface of the deep. There's water. So there's, there's earth, there's waters. There's a surface to the waters, which means some sort of atmosphere, apparently. What else would a water surface be butting up against? Very strange. Is it, is it like, like a potter, you know, kind of plops down a big lump of wet clay on the wheel and then starts getting to work? Is that what this is? Is it that uh, verse 1 describes a past event? That there's been some sort of creation already. And now God is moving in to do something where we pick up the story. Like every movie, you know, you, you, you pick up the movie at a certain point. There's some things that have happened already, and you're kind of getting on with the story here. Where he starts giving us detail. I don't know. He does say it's all formless and empty, which is the Hebrew rhyming pair, tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. Which is like... It's real messed up, okay? This is completely chaotic. It often carries connotations of, like, judgment has been leveled on this. Something terrible has happened. Disaster has struck. This would be like, you know, a nuclear holocaust would leave everything tohu wabohu, all right? <laughs> Let me come back to tohu wabohu next week. But, just trying to point out a few things for now. But, but even though things are a mess, all right? It's dark. Water, water, water everywhere, okay? But the Spirit of God is hovering right there. It's used, that word hovering that's used in Deuteronomy 32 of a mother bird hovering over her young in her nest. It's the Spirit of God is right down there. There's no like God distant far away, but there's the Spirit of God is up close and personal with this. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. I guess that's what you'd expect from a God like this. So we learn Elohim can speak. doesn't have a mouth. I'm not sure what speaking is like for God, but he definitely is the God who speaks, the God who reveals himself, the God who acts. He can speak. Speaking implies thinking, implies decision-making. These are elements of personhood. This is the personal God. We see just how powerful God's word is. This is the God who speaks things into existence. This is the God who's like, world, light, He's able just to, it's not magic, okay? Like ancient, some ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, it's magic. This is not an incantation. He's just, he's just commanding. Let it, this, this needs to happen. Let this come to pass. And it does. Well, we get even more insight on this when we open the book of John in the New Testament. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What? Then John goes on to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It tells us that Jesus Christ, through him all things, 
came into being. So somehow God the Son, we learn later, was present as the, the agent of creation. That's why some people think you've got, in Genesis 1-1, God the Father. In Genesis 1-2, God the Spirit. And in Genesis 1-3, the Word. Is that God the Son? I don't know. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the, word, the living Word. And so this, this powerful Word of God, he's, he's, he's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. This is a power we have access to. Some of us are like, man, I'm so messed up, I'll never change, I've been this way for so long. Okay, you need to expose yourself to the Word of God, the Word that calls things into being. The word that can create something out of nothing. That's the sort of power you need to snuggle up next to every single day. You start doing that, you tell me if you start to see some change in your life. It takes us a little longer to change than some of the, the stuff we're seeing here in Genesis 1. We're a lot more stubborn though, aren't we? We've got free will. God's got to work through our free will. He changes us through His Word. And then God saw the light was good. And so this is good. The things God created, is creating, we're going to see, are good. This is, there's a difference between creation is God and creation is good. And so He's a God that he's, He can declare things good. He can also declare things not good. He's a judge. He also separated the light from the darkness. We're going to see a lot of separating. God is often separating. He's kind of putting things where they should be. And then God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So he's naming things as well. And there was evening, and there was morning, a first day. And this is the pattern we're going to see for six days of creation. And it's, there's a template here, and most of the days contain most of these things, but you're going to see this right here. You're going to say, it'll say, and God said, let this thing come to pass. Let this thing happen. Let this thing come into being. And it's going to say, and it happened. And God saw that it was good, he usually says. And then God called the one thing this and the other thing that. And there was evening, and there was morning, an nth day, whatever day we're on, okay? A first day, a second day, a third day, up until the sixth day. And so you, is, we'll read on here, we'll, um, I'll just get, show you a couple samples here, and we'll take a look closer at this stuff next week, but just to see the pattern, it says, for example, day two, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So it's almost like there's water everywhere, and God is kind of separating things out. So God made the vault and separated the water from under the vault from the water above it. So skies and seas. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning. A second day. What about day three? He says, let that water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. Again, separating. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. Well, day three, we get a bonus here. It says, God saw that it was good, 
And then he makes something else. He says, let the land produce vegetation. And he goes on about that and, and it says, and it was so. And the land produced vegetation, just like God said. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. So we go on and on like this for six days of creation. We'll take a look at that next, next time. But what we need to take a look at here is this question. What is a day? Because the days are what this whole thing is structured around. Days. Um, there's different views on this. And we don't have time to go into all of this this week. We're going to spend two weeks on Genesis chapter 1. But I want to get us into this some um, this week. There are some people that take, and I, I think what is the most natural reading of this is that these are six 24-hour days, right in a row. You know, if this was all we had, that would be, I think, probably the conclusion that we would come to. And this view is espoused by a camp known as Young Earth Creationism. It's kind of a subgroup within Christianity. I know some people think all Christians are Young Earth Creationists. Some people think all Christians believe the earth is 6,000 or so years old. The entire universe, not just the earth. The heavens and the earth, the everything. But this camp holds that God created the earth and the present, and the present life forms in six consecutive 24-hour days, sometime within the last 10,000 years. Some will, some will say the earth might be as old as 10,000 years old. That means everything started about, you know, 6,000, 8,000 or so B.C. Some will put the starting day of the universe in 4004 B.C. All right, that's, that's the early, that's the, the latest you see it. And what they argue is that God did it entirely through miraculous means. They say none of it happened via evolution, none of it happened via natural processes. All of it was through miraculous divine intervention. You know, and, and that would be kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from some, maybe some of us here in this room. But this is what these guys hold. They also say, well, why does the earth look so old? Well, it's because of the world flood that we'll study later on in Genesis. Let's definitely spend some time on that. And also something they call apparent age. Apparent age. What they say about apparent age is they're like, well, you know, when God created the first humans, he didn't create a zygote that then slowly, you know, grew and then became a fetus and then a newborn and grew on up. No, he, would, he creates the first humans as grown humans who can talk and communicate and whatnot. You know, when God creates trees, he doesn't create, you know, a seed that slowly grows. He might have created some, boom, they're right there, okay? And so he created a parent age. It looks... You know, Adam looked older than he was when he was created. Eve looked older than she was. There's some problems, though, I see with young earth creationism. One is that it just doesn't match science, all right? And there, I, I'm not going to argue this too much here, but, um, you know, for example, this here is the MACS0647JD galaxy, which is the galaxy that is the farthest away from Earth. This is 13.3 billion light years from Earth. That's how far away this galaxy is. It's the farthest galaxy yet known. They think it was formed 420 million years after the Big Bang. And so if the Earth is 6,000 years old, then how would light from this distant galaxy, billions of light years away, there's many stars and other galaxies, there are even millions of light years away, or even, even 100,000 light years away, 
If it takes the light 13 billion years to get here, then how has it reached us yet? Well, God would have had to create not just the stars, but he also created the light beams coming from the stars and stretched those light beams all the way to earth so that we could see them. What about this? This is the Eniwita Coral Atoll, almost a mile deep. These, these coral atolls, they grow at a rate of 8 millimeters per year. So that would, that would say that this would be at least 175,000 years old. Well, parent age. God created it. 4,609 feet and 10 inches in size. You know, even though these are, it grows in layers, okay? And then it grew the last, you know, couple of, couple of centimeters since the creation of the world. What about this? Green River Shale, Utah, contains 7.5 million paper-thin sedimentary layers alternating the dark and the light. Dark layer, light layer, dark layer, light layer. These are like paper-thin. Sediment, a, a fifth of a millimeter thick. Um, you know, it's one thing if God wants to create a mountain, but why would he put 7.5 million layers in it to make it look that old. They've also, they've drilled into, uh, they've drilled ice cores in Greenland. And you, again, you can count the, the layers in those. One layer is deposited per year. Why would God do that? Why not just create it? One problem is apparent age makes the argument unfalsifiable. Anytime you give evidence of something much older, they're like, well, it's apparent age. Um, I think the methodology is wrong. I argue, I advocate an approach to Genesis 1 that, that takes a look at it and takes a look at first, not what is the one right view and how do we make the science fit it. Not one that says, okay, let's go to science and, and find what that says and then force the text to match our, our science. No, I, I think we take a look at the text first we look at what are some possible ways to interpret this, and then we go and look at what does science have to say, and how do these fit together? And what these guys have done is they've taken one view, one interpretation, and said this is the only way to take this, and they've actually come up with their own, their own science, their own degrees, creation science degrees, that it's kind of this whole alternate branch of science that matches their interpretation of Genesis 1. I have a theological objection to this, too. I, I think it makes God out to be a deceiver. So God's going to create 7.5 million sedimentary layers and then say, do you have enough faith to believe that the world is only 6,000 years old? Even though it looks like just this one formation is 7.5 million years old. I know that this light from this star has taken a million years to reach here. But do you have enough faith to believe that I created it with the light already in progress? Um, I, I think it's a, God, it's a God who's sending mixed messages. Faith is not something we believe in spite of facts. You know, God is the God of all truth. He's the God of creation. And what his word says shouldn't contradict with what we find with our five senses. 
I think it also, another critique, Hugh Ross points this out, it assumes way too much for evolution. Ironically, young earth creationists who are against evolution entirely, they, they after the, the world flood, we go down to a couple thousand species, and they think we're getting from a couple thousand species out to some five million species today, since the flood. That's a rate of evolution that is incredible, and way higher than I would give evolution credit for. I, I'm in, I, I believe in evolution. I believe in microevolution. I've got big questions about macroevolution that I'm going to talk about next time. But I, I think they're actually giving evolution too much credit, ironically. And so in trying to defend the Word of God, I think they're actually kind of making God out to be a, a deceiver. And in attacking evolution, they actually they, they give evolution too much credit. I think there's also indications within Scripture that open up other possibilities for what is a day. Check it out. Remember what Genesis 1-5 said? He said, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there, what is, what is day there? That word, the Hebrew word is yom, okay? There, a day is 12 hours. Second half of the verse. And there was evening and morning a first day. What's day there? 24 hours. And then we get to the end of the creation account and look what it says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, same word, that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So in that case, the day is the whole creation account. So there's, there's three different ways that word is used right there within the context of Genesis chapter 1. That's indicating there's some, there's some semantic range here on this word. What about this psalm? The only psalm written by Moses that we know of. Psalm 90 verse 4. What does Moses say? He says, God, a thousand years in your sight are like a day when it passes by. Like a yom. And so there, he's using it, he's comparing it to a thousand years in God's sight. And remember, there's only about 3,000 ancient Hebrew words compared to three-quarters of a million in the English language. Their words had to do a lot of different purposes. And so if Moses wanted to communicate a creation history consisting of six eons, for example, or six ages, he'd have no other option but to use that same word, yom, to describe those eras. You know, even today, our word day, we can say, you know, back in my day, we didn't have cell phones or whatever. It could be like, in the day of the steam engine or whatever. In the days of the Pony Express, whatever, you know. Referring to a period of time, right? The days when dinosaurs, you you get the point. Um, And so if that's the case, then it means we got some options to explore now. It opens up some other possible interpretations for Genesis chapter 1. What if these days are much longer than 24 hours? Or, a related one, what if we've got 24-hour days with really long periods of time between them? Is that possible? Is it possible God intervened at key points with creative acts along the way, utilizing both intervention, divine intervention, and natural processes? Is that possible? How would these other interpretations fit with modern scientific findings? That's a question we need to explore. And 
I want to talk about what are some major shortcomings with the state of modern explanations of origins. And what I'm going to argue is that the biblical account is best for the current state of modern scientific findings. I think this explains it best. But this sounds like a job for next time. Yes, Lord, thank you that you're uh, the God who speaks. Thank you, thank you that you're a God who has revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you created us, God. And I thank you that you sent your Son into this world that you created, that you loved us so much that you, you sent your Son who put on flesh, who lived among us, and then he died for us. And thank you that what that means is that your light can shine in our hearts and you can make us new and we can spend forever with you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.